Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. As much as I love youth engagement, I see it as a like roundabout way to get to the things I care about. So like I started it because I cared about climate change and I cared about school safety and I cared about government transparency. And I saw activating the youth who care about all of these things to be a really great way to get at all of those things. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is John V. Rao, president and founder at New Voters, a nonpartisan nonprofit that works to register high school students to vote. John V. got into political activism as a teenager. And now, just out of college, she's also heading up New Voters Research Network, working to bring behavioral science tools to help find successful interventions to tackle challenges like youth voter registration. I'm always glad to see young political entrepreneurs working to improve our country, and Janavi is a great example, and she's a heck of a singer as well. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Janavi Rao with New Voters. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Timeplots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplots library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Janavi, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yes. So my name is Janavi Rao. I take the She Series. I am 23 years old and just graduated from Harvard College in May, concentrating in government with a minor in music. I am the president and founder of New Voters, which is a student-led 501c3 that works with high school students to run voter registration drives in their schools. And I'm doing that full-time post-grad, and I'm really excited to be here. I'm currently based in D.C., but from the suburbs of Philadelphia. Go Birds, and excited to be chatting today. Go Birds means eagles? Yes. Ah. 5 <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's been a number of times when I have interviewed very young activists, if we could call you that, on the podcast. I think there's something... Uh, Very intriguing about people who get going quickly with political entrepreneurship. What do you think the roots are for you? There are so many people, like young people, increasingly in the space starting earlier and earlier. I started when I was a junior in high school. Up until that point, I was pretty confident I wanted to go to a conservatory. All my after school, in school activities were related to music. But 
And I think that this is pretty common for folks who are around my age. The 2016 election was the real impetus for me getting involved. So as I mentioned, I'm from the suburbs of Philadelphia, which is historically and famously very purple. And in the aftermath of the 2016 election, I remember walking into school feeling very upset and talking to my peers. And my school is pretty pretty mixed politically. And I remember walking up to folks who were Republican and being like, why are you so upset? And what came out was, you know, this was the most talked about event of our lifetimes, like the most consequential event of what's happening in our life. And just because of our age, we have no say. And it it really felt like that, like sitting on my couch on election night and watching all these like numbers on the screen and knowing that I wasn't one of them and that none of my classmates were one of them and that these decisions impacted our generation more than any other generation. And we had absolutely no say. So we wanted to get involved. We were like looking around for ways that, you know, as 16 year olds, we could plug into the political system. There really weren't that many. And what ended up happening was we noticed that like a ton of people were posting in the senior class were posting about the election and we were reaching out to them and it turned out that they didn't vote. So they were posting about how upset they were with the results, but they didn't vote. And upon further conversation with them, it became clear that it wasn't apathy on their part that was causing them to not be voting, but a lot of systemic and cultural barriers to you registering to vote and voting in that first election after you turn 18, even with something as talked about as the 2016 election. So we started New Voters. Initially, there was this feeling of like frustration and and hopelessness in myself. And then I think what really drove it was seeing it echoed across the you know political spectrum by my classmates. I wasn't old enough to vote until I graduated high school. My junior spring and my senior fall, um, and then my senior spring, we just ran registration drives in my high school to register those who were eligible to vote. A huge proportion of students are actually eligible to vote by the time they graduate high school. So that was the real driving force to get started. I still love music, but this is definitely like that rush of organizing on the ground in my school. It was addictive, which I'm sure a lot of you know organizers can relate to. Were your parents political? Did you think of yourself as a political person at home? So my parents were not political. My parents were Indian citizens until I think Obama Romney. And I think that was the first election that they were American citizens for. I'm not sure if they voted or not. I'm assuming this is the case with a lot of like immigrants who become American citizens. It's hard to initially feel that connection to the the country. Funnily enough, now my dad is like the most political person I know. My dad's like very techie, health tech, all that stuff. But after I got interested in politics, he threw himself in wholeheartedly and is now honestly like more informed than I am on the political side of things. I feel like I exist a lot more on the the organizing side. So my parents weren't particularly political. I always cared a lot about the environment. I like started a club in third grade called the Green Scene. We made huge, huge impact. I'm sure you've heard of us. We literally like made like wreaths out of sticks we found on the ground and sold them. I always cared a lot about climate and about like animal rights. My family became vegetarian after my brother got like upset about some animal rights stuff when he was like four or five. So like my family has like a we care a lot about about that. So I'm grateful to my parents for instilling that in me. But the political stuff was more reactionary to 2016. So you mentioned 
thinking you would go to conservatory and mostly doing music stuff. And I took the time to look you up on YouTube and listen to you singing a bit. Obviously, you've become an accomplished singer. Is that still ongoing or tell me a little about it? Well, that's very kind of you to, to look me up. I'm sure my my very small YouTube presence was grateful to your your view. I started taking lessons when I was like four or five in Indian classical music called Carnatic music. And it was pretty, it was pretty intense. I did like one or two, two hour lessons a week. I had to like practice every day for an hour, did like competitions and things like that. But I'd always really cared about musical theater. My mom and my dad moved here in like the 70s or the 80s. So my dad's also a big like classic rock fan as well. Like every weekend we would watch the 10th anniversary concert of Les Mis and the Fiddler on the Roof movie. And I was like, these are, this is, this is what music is. Like, this is amazing. My mom would take me to the Indian classical lessons and I was rebelling against her. And I was like, I want to do this. So when I was 14, I like started taking piano lessons, violin lessons and like flute lessons when I was young. So then when I was like 14, I switched completely to Western classical music. And I started going like really in depth into that. I really wanted to do musical theater, but my voice teacher, thankful to her, found that I had like a an affinity for opera. And that was where I, I really felt the most proud of my singing and the most room for, for growth. But then like in high school was when my music got like more serious and I did some competitions. I was ranked second in the state as a soprano for singing. And then I, I lived in Italy for a summer in a professional opera there. And then I sang in the Kimmel Center for some competitions that I won. So it was a really exciting period of time. And I'm really, really grateful. There's actually like a really high number of organizers and people in like the activism space who have a music background. And so I always have something to talk about with with organizers that I meet when it comes to music too. But I think that there has to be some sort of, maybe there's some like study that's been done about music and activism and the correlation between folks who do both. I've definitely felt a lot of community, even in the activism world, with other folks who are musicians. Did you ever do music? I mean, I played the clarinet poorly. Do you have a favorite opera? Yes, it's very basic, but I love uh, Le Nozze di Figaro, The Marriage of Figaro. It was the last opera that I've done. Uh, at, I was the, I was Susanna in the Harvard College Opera production of Marriage of Figaro. And I just think it's, it's a perfect show. The music is perfect. The characters are perfect. It's also like four hours long, so maybe that's not perfect, but it's definitely my, my favorite. It happens to be the one that my mom dragged me to when I was 10 when we were living in England. So I've heard it, and they played it, of course, at home on the records. Would you care to sing a short piece? Very short, just for this. I've had one other guest sing, and it seems like you would be a good fit. Well, like an opera piece? Just a little piece from Marriage of Figaro. Like literally two lines or something. Like yeah. Tivola fronte in Oh, no, no, no. 
I guess you're not that shy about showing <laughs> the, the level of your talent in that area. Thank you very much. It's going to be a memorable podcast for me just based on that. <laughs> That's very kind of you to say. No, I, I used to be super shy about it. And now, I I mean, it was a follow-up to your question. I don't do any music anymore. So now really? I'm like, I'll take any chance I can take <laughs> <thing> now. <laughs> well, I, I hope you go back to, to finding a, a way to do it. I feel most connected to myself in a lot of ways. When I do the things that I liked when I was young, for me, it was like getting on the soccer field, which you said you did as well. And I, and I think it's good to keep these things going. So don't let it fall too fallow. Anyway, let's turn back to, to the, the task at hand, which is understanding what you've been up to. Tell me a little bit about what the challenges were in getting new voters started in high school. Usually... There's sort of the the highfalutin idea of an enterprise, and then there's the nitty gritty of actually making it happen. Tell me about that nitty gritty. I think that definitely, like, I was the hardest part of it. Like me, me against me. If you're thinking about like the, the I think that's often the case in <laughs> in running an enterprise is is like managing yourself. Yes. Yeah, I I, I think like specifically when I was running that like the the drive that we did the fall of my senior year was like incredibly involved. We were registered 85% of eligible students to vote in three days. So how many, you've said 85%, that's how many people out of how many people? So there are 550 people in my senior class. November, there were, I think, 130, 140 students eligible to vote in the November 2018 election. Because 85% was what we needed to get an award from our, from the Secretary of State's office. I think we went above 85, um, but it was definitely a task to do. And really excitingly, my school has continued doing it and getting the Governor's Civic Engagement Award every year since, both in the spring and the fall. Because in the spring, as you can imagine, a lot more people are eligible to vote than in the fall. There are lots and lots of existing voter registration enterprises. Why start something rather than find one and, and team up with an existing one? So in the spring of my junior year, I reached out to League of Women Voters and I was like, I think we should do a registration drive at my school. So the November 2016 election was the fall of my junior year. So spring of my junior year was right after. So I reached out to them in like February and I was like, I want to do this at my school. I've never met a more kind and like thoughtful uh, and like eager to help organization than the league in like every one of its states and chapters got to know the folks at my, my Chester County league in Pennsylvania. And they came to my school and we tabled and they got me all the forms that I needed and everything like that. And while they were incredible and I think the league will tell you it themselves, their tabling efforts are their least effective ones um, just because I mean, you can imagine being in high school, like you see people who are not your age sitting at a table outside of your lunchroom and they're waiting for you to walk by. You're not going to stop to them. So that summer, I'll like state clear, like I wasn't planning on starting like this being a nonprofit or starting this or anything like that summer. My dad, who, as I mentioned, does not did not have any political connections, uh, just like went on his LinkedIn and looked up like politics, government and saw who he had. And he had my brother's f- 
soccer teammate's mom was working on the Pennsylvania like election system. And that was the only person who showed up on his LinkedIn, but a great connection because she like was like, I know this organization called Inspire US and they'll help you. So Inspire US does not exist anymore, but they're, we're an incredible organization. They've now been um, absorbed by a new organization, new-ish, called Turnup, who, which is also run by a good friend of mine. What's his name? Zev Shapiro. Yeah, he's been on the show. Oh, amazing. Yeah, I've known Zev since he was, Zev's a year, Zev's two years younger than me. He's one of the people that I was thinking of when I said I've interviewed some very young actors, because he actually came down to DC to talk to me and get advice when he was like 14, 15, 16, something like that. Yeah, I talked to Zev when he was 16, too. (laughs) I helped him run a drive at his high school when he was 16. When I, Because I was a freshman at Harvard and Zev went to school nearby. And then Zev obviously is now in his senior year at Harvard. So legendary guy, nothing but positive things to say about him. He's from uh, Cambridge himself, right? Yeah. 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 He was always around. Uh, and it does not surprise me at all that he took the initiative to like reach out and come meet you because he's just that he's good. like that. Yeah. He gave a speech for Warren at the state convention, if I remember correctly. Oh my gosh. <laughs> That's amazing. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Inspire helped us and we just like made a club at our school because that was the easiest way to, you know, go about doing all this stuff. And Inspire US was like so generous and like they sent us like t-shirts and pledge to vote cards. But then our school was like, you can't do it through them. So we started just, it's called 2018 New Voters when we started it, which is obviously does not age well because that, that was just that one time. So this was the November 2017 election. That was the club name. And then we got a lot of press because of our drive, because we worked with Inspire because they were setting up the Governor Civic Engagement Award with the Pennsylvania Secretary of State's office. So we were the first school in Pennsylvania to receive the Governor Civic Engagement Award. The Secretary of State came to our school and we got like invited to Harrisburg. I was named PA State Senate clerk for the day, which was very cool. Um, They did pronounce my name as like Johnny on the Senate floor, which was very funny. My friends and I had a laugh out of it. So once we got the press, a bunch of schools in Pennsylvania, in Chester County, Montgomery County, Delaware County, like started reaching out to us being like, how do we run a drive? So we had written down all of the stuff that our drive had done, which was very, very school specific. Yes. Um, Like it's very tailored to like how high school students operate. So the way that new voters started is like, it was me and like 20 friends who started it. And then we grew to like 50 people running the drive. And almost everyone who was part of it wasn't eligible to vote themselves. We grew just naturally because like we went into homerooms to give our initial pitch. And then a bunch of students reached out and were like, oh, we want to help you do this. And other than Inspire, we weren't really aware of any, and like the league, we weren't really aware of any other orgs that were focused on high school voter registration and civic, like civic engagement, yes, but voter registration and like do you know that some states have a law where you can get yourself on the rolls in advance? Yes, yeah. pre-registration. Pennsylvania yeah. is not fortunate enough to have that, but a lot of our focus states do. And in Maryland, where I work, also has that. It's a huge opportunity to get a lot of students registered to vote early through that. We weren't planning on making a new organization. I think that we also like wanted a student-led one. So like, new voters are still pretty much student-led other than me. And I stepped down from the executive directorship position for that reason. I didn't want to continue being in charge of a group of high school and college students. I mean, I, I would love to, but I thought it wouldn't 
serve our mission for me to continue being in charge of it as a graduate. Yeah. I've seen other people like decide to make it up to 25 or something like that. You were upset by the 2016 results clearly. And from the rest of your bio, I'm guessing that you weren't a big Trump fan for some reason. When you picked a nonpartisan route, which you seem to have to register all of the kids, that's a distinct choice. Um, and probably means in a school that's mixed politically that the impact on vote totals for the parties is negligible. Tell me about how you thought about that or was that ever a decision? Because there are registration groups which are nonpartisan fully, which I honor, and there are ones that are partisan, which I also think is important, particularly in this time where one party's bonkers. What are your thoughts? It's no surprise with my nonpartisan hat off, I'm like very much a Democrat. So it's a, it's a fair question. I, I get it a lot from students in our, our group because they also wonder why we're, we're doing this. So when we started, there wasn't a choice. So at my high school, if we wanted to be able to like get extended homeroom, we got a list of all of the eligible students to vote from our administration. If we wanted any of those things, we had to be completely nonpartisan. So to start, it was a necessity. And as we were growing, it remained a necessity. Schools did not want us to be in their school if we weren't completely nonpartisan. You could pick the schools you went to. Some are going to be much more Democratic and some are much more Republican. You can pretty well know which they are. Yes, there are obviously ways to like stay C3 and get around and be not like nonpartisan plus essentially. But we've definitely taken the nonpartisan plus route, which was inspired a lot actually from um, when I that that term when I was at the Harvard Votes Challenge, that's what we called ourselves. We're not just nonpartisan. We're going to go above and beyond to make sure that we are. And the reason for that came down to, honestly, those initial conversations I had with people at my school, with people on the other side of the aisle. It just became increasingly apparent to me that the Democratic Party should look like what young Democrats want it to look like. And the Republican Party should look like what young Republicans want it to look like. Like It's only a net good to just register people from both parties because young people on the whole, statistics like show this, and polling does like young people on the whole care about climate, care about democratic systems, care about school safety and, and things like that. New Voters is like founded on the principle that nothing about us without us. The decisions that impact our, our you know, demographic and our age group the most, like these decisions with long time scales, like climate, they impact our generation the most. They impact like Gen Z. And now I don't know what the gen generation below Gen Z is, but them, <laughs> it impacts us the most and we should have a say. And I think that that extends to Republicans as well. And, and, and so we definitely make it a point to like go into schools that are in like very rural, traditionally red areas because we just want to see like the, the country as a whole reflecting young people's views, not just one party. Can you sort of trace the evolution of new voters as you go into college and all the way to now? How have you worked to scale it? How has it become what it is now? Yes. So I got into college early. That was a relief. So my senior spring, I was able to like just focus on new voters. And as I mentioned, we had like 50 people on our team and we split into recruitment and mentorship slash training. So my friend Grace Grace was in charge of mentorship and my friend Connor was in charge of training and me and my friend Kent were managing everything to see like how many people were, were coming through the program, like coming through. And we wanted to get a hundred schools 
by the time we graduated high school. And we did. To say what quality at which we were working with those schools is <laughs> up in the air. But we got 100 schools who joined us in Pennsylvania to run registration drives at their schools. I remember walking into like our school library and seeing like all 50 of our team just like sitting around the library in their either recruitment or mentorship pods trying to get people. And me and Kent called every two days, every three days. And we had a big whiteboard and we would just write how many schools joined us since the last time we talked. So then coming into college, that summer we all took off because, you know, it was the summer after senior year. When I came to college, I definitely wanted to be really involved with new voters. And I had a friend named Vivek who also went to high school in Pennsylvania, was one of the people that joined us to run a drive. And he and I were the ones like continuing with new voters my freshman year. What ended up happening, the transition to college is is a, a daunting one. And like, even if like I was taking not very difficult class, I was like, not just not to say government isn't hard, but my government major experience was not the most difficult of classes. So I'm telling Steve. Yeah, I, well, I did take his class freshman year and that was a hard class. So <laughs> I wasn't on like a computer science or pre-med route. I was part of like three music groups my freshman year. So new voters definitely fell a bit to the wayside. We helped the high school Democrats of America and the high school Republicans of Texas run drives, but it was still pretty ad hoc. My sophomore year, but I helped start the Harvard Votes Challenge. So dear friend, Teddy Landis started the Harvard Votes Challenge. I was like, as much as like getting Harvard students to vote is important, I care a lot more about extending Harvard's resources to the surrounding communities. So he was like a great leader. He was like, awesome, go for it. And I was like, that sounds great. So when it became my sophomore year, I had like the full go ahead and like the funding to create an arm of the Harvard Votes Challenge that was high school engagement. And we we got like the approval that it was like a joint effort between new voters and the Harvard Votes Challenge at the Institute of Politics at the Harvard Kennedy School. The language is very important. And we recruited around 17 Boston public school high schools to run drives with us. And what ended up happening was we had the summit called the Boston Votes Conference one half of it was my friend Chris and Zach ran where they brought in Boston, like different Boston universities and colleges to come in and commit to civic engagement. And on the high school end, we brought in those, you know, 17 high schools. So a combination of students and teachers and administrators at this high school to come in. We had a seven hour workshop where we went through everything you need to know to run a registration drive at your school. Like how do you get permission from your principal? How do you get into all of the cliques in your school, like what are the registration rules in Massachusetts. So that was in November of 2019. March 2020, we're all sent home. And that's when new voters really got into full swing. It was before the November 2020 election. High school students and college students didn't have things to do over the summer, had a lot of energy. So we opened up an internship application. And all of the people who were on the Boston Votes team with me at Harvard we're happy to take on leadership roles in New Voters. We got 100 people who applied to be interns at New Voters for that summer. We did not anticipate that. We had like a small social media presence since high school, but a huge amount of those initial 50 people from my high school, who I've not talked to since graduating, applied to be interns, which was awesome. And that's when we became like what we are now. We've played around with a lot of different departments, but currently we have like organizing policy, fundraising, slash development, and comms. We've had anywhere from like 10 departments to like two departments throughout our time. So going into 2020, 
we were like, we want to run registration drives virtually at these schools. We adapted our curriculum really quickly to be for online registration drives. And then in the month before the 2020 election, we moved all of our interns. We took like 20 or 30. And we moved all of them into the last mile task force. So Nivia, who's now the executive director of New Voters, she at the time was the director of the last mile task force. She's on the West Coast. She would wake up every morning at like 4 or 5 a.m. her time to talk to our high school students before their high school started. And in like a month, we recruited and ran drives in 100 high schools across the country. And then throughout, we also had drives in around 400 high schools. And that was really exciting to, to be able to do. And since then, like we've been able to fundraise a little bit and stipend our directors. We generally have anywhere from 20 to 50 interns, high school and college students at a time, and generally just plodding along, trying to figure out how to be better. And I think our big goal now for the 2024 election is to register 100,000 students to vote in a measurable, verifiable way. And that like asterisk is the most important part. We really want to be able to be like, we have the back end we're going to compare it to the voter roll afterwards and we're going to match it up and make sure that we actually hit this number. So we obviously needed an increased capacity in tech and we have an incredible tech director who's creating a tool that like is like really tailored to our high school students needs that does not exist. And then we also obviously need greater like data evaluation, which is what I'm working on right now as well and greater coordination and collaboration. And this is learnings from TurnUp and Zeb's incredible work realized that we need to stipend our high school students. And you need to stipend a high school student $50. Obviously, $50 is a nominal amount, but it, it's like an award for, for their work. That is my long-winded answer of the evolution. But right now, I stepped down from executive directorship. So last fall, I interned at the White House at the Office of Public Engagement, which was an incredible learning experience. I got to take over a lot of the youth engagement work there, guided by the incredible Hannah Bristol, who leads youth engagement at the White House. While I was there, I learned a lot about, you know, the coalition building that's inherent to the work at the White House. I love, love research. I've really loved writing my thesis. I ended up doing uh, a thesis in behavioral economics. I don't know why they allowed it to be a government thesis. What did you apply that to? Yeah. So I, I developed a, a theory. Was that the nudge thing? That I saw you talking about? Yes. Yes. The spillover potential of a nudge. So I'll try to keep this very brief. I'm sure you're familiar with behavioral economics. I'm certainly aware of it. And also I've interviewed a lot of people who have applied it to different things involving turnout or other aspects of politics, persuasion, and so on. Yes. And this was just like when I was taking a class. I was like, if we are, you know, if the basis fundamental, you know, tenet of behavioral economics is things other than money can impact how you behave. So if that's the case, then why don't we think that, you know, nudges that you apply to somebody could linger in the brain as well and impact proximal related decisions? The fundamental idea came out of a study that was done at the behavioral economics team for the Australian government where they sent a letter to the top 40% prescribing doctors of antibiotics. And it said, you are in the top 40% of prescribers of antibiotics. You know, this is dangerous because of superbugs. And this peer comparison nudge decreased antibiotic prescription rates among those doctors by 70%. 
which is a huge and massive and just like a, a small, you know, intervention that was applied by the Department of Health. I was wondering like what additional data they collected. They were able to observe this effect for, for a year and like it lingered and continued. There are two opposing concepts in behavioral economics, the moral licensing effect and the moral identity effect. So moral licensing is like you do something good, so you feel like you can do something bad. So like if in the morning I go for a run, then I feel like I can eat, you know, a whole cake later. The moral identity effect is like you do something good and you want to maintain that idea of you being good in your head. So you keep doing good things. So like I'm the kind of person who recycles. So I'm going to keep recycling forever. I think I'm a victim of both of those. Yes, I think a lot of people are. I think I definitely am. So my my theory and my thesis essentially said that there are certain kinds of nudges that have a higher spillover potential. So spillover in the sense of like they can remain in your head and impact your behavior so that you act in a different way related to that nudge on a subsequent proximal behavior. So in the case of the antibiotics, how do doctors then prescribe opioids? Those same doctors who were given the antibiotic. Are they becoming more careful about all of their prescribing, not just not just uh, the first one. Yes. Yes. Or yeah. alternatively, are they, is the moral licensing effect taking, taking play and we're seeing increased opioid prescription rates? So I think you conducted an experiment, like an yes. original experiment to test this, right? Yeah. I conducted yeah. a randomized control trial with around two, 1,000, 2,000 respondents that saw like how a nudge that's called a parental, like a prime identity prime. So they primed, we primed folks for their parental identity. What does prime them for their parental identity mean? Translate that into regular speak. Essentially, there's a bunch of things called nudges, which use our insights into human behavior to do or say something that would change someone's behavior. So essentially like leveraging these insights we have into how humans suboptimally, non-rationally behave. So one kind of nudge is called a prime or you prime for identity. And basically you make people think about themselves more in the context of one aspect of their identity. You could prime for someone's identity as thinking of themselves as a environmentalist. You could prime, where, where are you from? I'm from Boulder, Colorado. You could prime you to think of yourself more as a Coloradian. Coloradan, yes. Coloradan, apologies. <laughs> I know, I mean, people on polling questions, we know answer differently depending on the order of questions. Exactly. That's yeah. the, that's the exact same concept. So yeah. that's this is the same reason why you have to be careful in polling whether you put the demographic questions first or at the end or whatever else that might prime identity. So in the sense of parental identity primes, what we did is we asked folks at the beginning who were in the treatment group to both list all of the traits that you think of when you think of what it means to be a good parent and then list three words that describe your relationship with your child. Now I get what you mean by parental pr- Identity prime. Yep. So we primed folks to think about their identity as a parent. We threw out everyone from the sample who wasn't a parent. Um, And then we asked them what they think about COVID and then pause some sort of temporal lag. And then what they think about climate change in separate experiments, concern was increased for with a parental identity prime. So one experiment found that if you prime parental identity, people are more concerned about COVID. One found that if you prime people for parental identity, they're more concerned about climate, which makes sense they think more in terms of the long scale effects of things, or they think more about how things impact their kids, which COVID and climate change disproportionately do. 
So the, the experiment I did, whatever it was, it was a success. It, it was fine. But the idea is that researchers only look at the target action when evaluating the impact of a nudge and then not on targeted actions that the nudge might spill over to. This is as insane as like drug manufacturers only looking at the effect of a drug on blood pressure and not that huge list of side effects that they say at the end of the commercials. So the theory I developed classifies different nudges based on their likelihood to produce spillover effects. So specifically hypothesizing that certain nudges which promote a behavior or mindset rather than a specific discrete action can have the mindset linger and impact subsequent untargeted decisions. So that was the idea of the thesis and this initial experiment suggested that it was correct. In terms of applying it to voting, And at new voters, we've not necessarily like named it like, oh, this is a peer comparison nudge. Oh, this is a prime. But we definitely do like in our speeches that our students give, we like prime for your, you know, thinking of yourself as an environmentalist or prime for you thinking of yourself as a student athlete or a student who takes standardized tests because we're like, uh, and then we also did like this teens get the vaccine campaign uh, where we worked with the former director of the CDC and the White House. And it was really cool. But we had like blank teens get the vaccine. So like, you know, you know, student like student athlete teens get the vaccine or music teens get the vaccine. And then they say because blank. So just like really reinforcing that, like there are various reasons why you might get the vaccine based on your various identities. But I will say the biggest impact that my research has had on new voters is I think hand in hand with behavioral economics is program evaluation and policy evaluation. So essentially like running a randomized control trial to see whether the intervention works or not. And that is something that is very rarely, and at least in my experience in the organizing world, very rarely used. And I think it's because like organizations are strapped thin as is like, and it's, it takes like specific expertise and it takes money and time to run these evaluations of your program. But born out of that is this thing that I'm running full time now called the New Voters Research Network, which brings together high school students, high school serving organizations, and academics to empirically identify the best ways to civically engage and turn out high school students to vote. And it serves two purposes. So one, the high school students are completely in charge of the research, the high school students and like young researchers we have. So we have around 10 research assistants who are either in high school or freshmen in college, and they completely come up with a research question. And it's just a better research question because they're in high school. So they know better research questions for folks in their, their area. But the other purpose of this research network is high school students and young college students and even older college students. It's very hard to conduct original research. It's very hard to find those opportunities where you're not being researched or like just using Zotero to make citations. And in this instance, with the New Voters Research Network, these students are actually the ones who are coming up with the research question, deciding what the methodology is, writing the survey questions, identifying and recruiting the sample. Each project has at least one academic on it. So, and then I'm on all the projects. So, but we always have at least one professor or grad student or postdoc on the project. And that's been really, really exciting. So I am very grateful to be part of that. There are uh, a number of organizations that I'm aware of in the political space who specialize in behavioral economics applied to politics. And have you run into any of them? Do you do you ever collaborate or team up with them? Yeah. So like the Analyst Institute is a great a great part of that. We applied for um, and were semifinalists in the Open Labs under tested fund that Aaron Strauss runs, who ran Analyst Institute. 
the point of, of that project is to essentially, so we're working with um, some gun violence prevention advocates to see how various gun violence prevention messages impact turnout. I don't think that we've really settled on what the best way to message and activate people around gun violence pre- like prevention is. So that that is one. My thesis advisor, Professor Michael Hiscox, founded the behavioral economics team for the Australian government. And he's been a great advisor on our projects. My professor from college, uh, from high school that I worked with really closely, Professor Diana Mutz from the University of Pennsylvania, is also like a huge advisor and looks over all of our project proposals. So I would say right now we're working more squarely in the academic world, but I'm very excited and interested to work with more think tanks that are doing this work too. Has it been hard to raise money for this? We've not started to raise money yet. <laughs> so I would say that that's- I mean, broadly for the whole operation. I mean, because you said you were stipending people and stuff. So that money's coming from somewhere. So we fundraised in 2020 and we've not fundraised since. So we're like a really, really low cost organization because until me, we've never had a full-time person before. And we've stipended folks like essentially on like a contractor basis. We're like been very scrappy about it. We've had students like go through their college will pay them if they're doing an unpaid internship for the summer or like they'll give them term time money to be doing things. I don't know if it's hard because I've not super tried until right now where I'm trying and I'm struggling, but I think that's more because I don't have the skills that I need, but very kind people are helping me grow those skills. I was looking at your list of people in the group and one of them is Olivia Ausnamer. I guess she's at Penn State or something, but I was asked to be part of this democracy group of podcasts and she had been the marketing person for that podcast group. That's how small the circles are sometimes in this world of who knows who and who lands where. Olivia's amazing. Yeah. She just like, we had an open application and she applied and we were like, oh my gosh, (laughs) she's amazing. Yeah. So what should I have asked you about new voters or your research that I failed to? There are some like common problems with youth voter registration and specifically high school voter registration across all of the organizations doing them. So when I came back from the White House Nivia was executive director because I turned it over to her. She was like doing a great job. I was about to graduate from college. So I was like, okay, I still want to be in the space. And I decided to do a listening tour with around like 30 high school serving organizations from Rock the Vote to the YMCA, et cetera. And asking like, what has your experience been like in high school civic engagement? Do you do voter registration? If you do, why? If you don't, why not? Like in high schools. And there were three main things that came out as like big problems that we at New Voters also face. So one was a problem of retention. Students graduate. And if you have like one superstar at a school and they graduate and they don't like nominate someone before they go or they nominate someone who's not, you know, as invested as them, like things can fizzle out very quickly if you don't have on the ground presence, which at New Voters, we don't in a lot of the places because most of our staff is either in high school or in college. So that's one. Retention is a huge problem. The scale at which it happens is like pretty, pretty massive in terms of lack, like loss of schools. Second, a big problem is a lack of coordination between the limited organizations that there are that work in high school civic engagement. Like I said, I know Zev. I know Ava, who was also on your podcast from 18 by Vote. 
Yes, uh, very well. She's a very close friend. All of these people I've met through through this work, but all of our coordination and collaboration is very ad hoc. And I would say like we're all dealing with the same problems and not really sharing what our solutions are to them. Not because we're hiding it from each other, but because there's not really an apparatus to do that. And whereas in like the partisan space, you know, there's America votes in the nonpartisan space. It's really hard to like know if you're double dipping in a school and all of that. So the coordination, sharing of best practices, all of that's pretty hard. And then the last is what the research network is attempting to address is a lack of empirics. So folks don't know both what the underlying drivers of high school voter registration and civic engagement are, but also whether their programming works, what is the best way to do this work. So the last one we're attempting to solve with the research network, and we're actually helping organizations run these kinds of evaluations. So we worked with a youth-led organization called Youth in Policy to evaluate their deliberative communication program. We're working with Generation Citizen right now to do a qualitative evaluation of some stuff, their programming. That's really great. But on the coordination collaboration side, I'm a fellow at the University of Maryland um, at the Center for Democracy and Civic Engagement. And as part of that, I've started like this project where once a month, a meeting with leaders of organizations that register high school students to vote to talk about one topic each month. So this first month, the topic is why is it important to register high school students to vote? Because that's not readily apparent. So we come onto the Zoom. We all talk about, you know, like what what we do, why we do it, why this and then talk about the topic. And then I'll go back write something up based on everybody's responses. We'll all share it on our local channels, but then also pitch it to like um, the mainstream media outlets. So like for this first meeting that we have, we have like the White House Youth Engagement Head in attendance. We have Circle in attendance. We have 18 by vote and we have When We All Vote. And we have like around like 20 organizations. And then Zev is coming to future ones as is like the YMCA and stuff like that. Did you ever run into Katie Ader? She had made a hub for youth organizations. I don't, I interviewed oh, her back. Future in, Coalition, yes. Yes, yes. I don't know if she's still running it. I, I interviewed her back in 2019, I think. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I mean, we, we're, we're part of Future Coalition. Okay. Um, so. I, you could try, I'd be curious if she's still, if you, if you find out if she's still going with that or what's the status, maybe I should talk to him again or something. But Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. I know Future Coalition is still doing great work. That's great. Um, I don't know if Katie is still. Do you, do you um, get involved in policy stuff? Like one of the things that drives me crazy whenever I talk to registration people is like we shouldn't really have registration or it should be same-day registration. The whole thing is just a snarl that is unnecessary in this day and age. You know, one of the th- ways to cure this would be to change the law nationally. Uh, do you get involved in stuff like that? Yes, absolutely. And we totally agree. Like our goal is for our organization to not exist. I think that we do like important like leadership development stuff. The voter registration of it all should not be a problem that we are dealing with. You could turn um, that to just turnout. Boy, you know, it must be frustrating to register people and then they don't even vote. Yes, for sure. And like turnout or even information, like I would say that like we're working in some schools before this Pennsylvania Supreme Court election and there are students who are registered to vote, um, but they're not aware that there is an election in you know 2023. That kind of stuff is still really critical. So we've attempted to get involved in policy in a variety of ways. So one is we wrote a bill that was introduced in the PA State House last year to 
essentially support teachers in running voter registration drives at their schools. We are not reintroducing it because Governor Shapiro has introduced automatic voter registration, but we're hoping to reintroduce it soon because we still think that it's important to help teachers or essentially like give principals like a menu of options that they have to do one of the things from. Because in a lot of state constitutions, it actually does require voter registration. So like in the Pennsylvania Elections Code, it says that every high school in Pennsylvania has to give out registration materials and like publicize that they're giving out registration materials. And then we also are working with a bunch of state senators in Pennsylvania to set up youth councils at each of the state Senate offices. And that's been really exciting to work on. And a lot of senators are having a lot of positive thing about it. We do 100% believe that AVR and like same day registration or even just eliminating voter registration are totally things that like should happen. Our core competency is in helping students like run these efforts at their schools. So I wouldn't say that we're, we don't want to be doing more policy work, but as of right now, especially leading into 2024, we're moving away from those kinds of things and into more of the organizing space. When you said something about a hundred high schools, which is a lot, it was a lot of work just at your high school to make it happen, but there's I think something like 30,000 high schools in the country. There's 27,155 high schools in America. <laughs> it's a big number. It's a big number compared to 100. How do you think about getting to half of those or 10% of those? Yeah. So I definitely don't think that it's one organization can do that. I think that like, and I think that this is something that maybe I have different opinions on than other people But I think that we need to bring more people into the space. I think we need more people starting organizations and we need more like state specific things like new voters is leaning more in the direction of going into a state because like you can just build so much more community and impact if you and and a lot more core competency. So I think that there should be more organizations and we should be welcoming and nurturing of more organizations and students who want to start high school serving voter registration organizations, because in the college space, there's so many organizations and there's way less colleges and there are still more organizations popping up. In the high school space, I could probably name like 15 organizations that do high school voter registration and we're usually in the same states and there's no real coordination about like what schools we're in versus other people. So I think we need increased coordination to get into every school in the country. I think we need like a school by school approach, essentially like a spreadsheet of every school. And we need to track who already have programs, who need programs. That's pretty daunting. And that's why I was asked, kind of why I was asking about policy. It's just such a big country. That's just one part of the puzzle. When I was started this podcast, some six plus years ago, I asked a kind of a standard question of people, which was, what have you learned about political entrepreneurship from starting your organization? A number of the people who listen to this, and certainly a lot of the guests have gone through this process of making something from scratch that didn't exist before. I asked you about the nitty gritty of it, but like, what if, if, if you were going to be an advisor to someone starting something up maybe it doesn't have to be a registration organization. What would you tell them as some words of wisdom after all this experience you've had? We really try to like encourage our students to like start things or join things that exist already. So I feel like there are 
There are times I've given advice before. And I actually did give a speech at my, like a, like a workshop at my high school about how you can pursue like a career in public service or even like start something. And I think the biggest thing is like, ask for help, especially if you are young. I've been so lucky. And I think it's because the people I've reached out to have been very kind, but also like by nature of being young, people will help you. If you ask, like, I'm creating a budget and I don't know how to write a budget. I met with a professor yesterday and I was like, I don't know how to write a budget. And they were like, awesome, I'll help you. I'll help you do it. Asking for help and paying it forward. I will say like, there are people who've like spent like hours talking to me about random things that I had questions about. And I'm like, what can I do to help you? Like, this is so kind. And they are like, the only thing that you can do is like when you are my age and someone reaches out to you for help that you spend this much time talking to them. That was the best thing I ever heard. I really, really value people like that. Like that's the reason I was able to start New Voters was because my brother's soccer teammate's mom had coffee with me and because the League of Women Voters like sent me things and because my school tried to get us in the paper, like just because people helped. So I would say even if you're not, you know, 17, say you're like 50 and starting an organization, like I still think that asking for help and not being shamed I feel like I can't even remember time someone said no, maybe to like the extent of something I was asking, but. No, it's, it strikes me as very good advice. I think I did too little of that when I was starting stuff and I was in my early 30s, so I get it. Do you see around the corner for yourself, what's next for you in your career if you want to, you know, go forward maybe without new voters or past that? Do you think about running for office? Do you think about uh, starting other types of things, going you know, back to school, what, what's in front of you? Yeah, great question. So right now I just started like this research network and these weekly meeting series. I see myself like as long as I feel comfortable calling myself a youth organizer, staying in the youth organizing space, there's a short window where I feel like I can be here and feel like comfortable placing myself as a youth organizer. Still being young enough to do it. Yeah. yeah. And not to say that there are definitely older people who do this work. And I think that they do and like intergenerational organizing. Like we need everybody to be caring about high school civic engagement. I think that I could play a big, like a role in the, the research part of this, which I really care about. And then also this increased coordination. And then also with new voters, definitely trying to get us into a thousand schools and all of that. After that, as much as I love youth engagement, I see it as a like roundabout way to get to the things I care about. So like I started it because I cared about climate change and I cared about school safety and I cared about government transparency. And I saw activating the youth who care about all of these things to be a really great way to get at all of those things. But it's kind of like a roundabout way of getting to those issues. I really want to do more stuff in behavioral economics and specifically like creating and crafting interventions. Um, so I definitely see myself going back to school to get a PhD, ideally. After that, I, I would love to work on like policy and program evaluation, but also like writing behavioral interventions and, and testing them and implementing them. So I don't know what that job is. I very much see myself on the implementing side of things, though. I consider myself very logistically oriented as a person. Behavioral economics is one of the few things that like, I love thinking about new things in. But generally, I love thinking about how to do something. I feel like that's what I'm, I'm best at, is like, how do we make something happen? So as much as like, I love think tank work, I'd love to be able to translate that work into action in some way. So like there was like someone I knew at the White House who 
uh, headed all of the evaluation work across the federal government. And like, that seems like a very cool thing to do. <laughs> well, Jonavi, it has been a great pleasure to talk with you. You are head and shoulders the best singer I've had on the program so far, at least that I've had a chance to hear. Maybe, maybe Ava and Zev are sleeper singers and we don't know. So. <laughs> I, know I know that's, you know, it's my fault for not asking more people, but also super interesting to hear about what you're up to. And I look forward to hearing about more of you in the future. So anything else you want to say? That's all. Thank you. Thank you so much. Honestly, like I really mean to say like you are a role model of mine and I have listened to your podcast and I've like very much used a lot of the things that you have created. So it has truly been like an honor and very exciting and self enlightening to be talking through this podcast with you. (laughs) Well, thank you. That was Jonavi Rao. She's at new-voters.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.